just want to open us in a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in um, seeing us through last year. And I know that dates on the calendar can be arbitrary. Um, but Lord, you know it's also the way we mark time um, in this temporal existence that we have. And so thank you for your faithfulness to us as individuals, to us as a church. We pray, Lord, as we begin a new series in First um, Corinthians, as we submit ourselves afresh to your word, that you would do your amazing work in us, Holy Spirit, more and more changing our minds and our hearts to work properly, like you intended when you first created us, made in your image. Pray, Holy Spirit, for your ministry to take these words of Paul, inspired by the Lord, do your deep, deep work inside of us, work that we can't just will ourselves to do, work that is beyond our capacity as, uh, as fallen people. And I pray uh, over this year you'd make us more and more in the image of Jesus. With love and great expectation we pray these things. Amen. Well, I am excited uh, to start this series in 1 Corinthians titled, Following Jesus in the Real World. Um, this is one of those books where if you had any pipe dreams about how the early church was so special or so perfect, 1 Corinthians kind of wrecks all of those dreams because it shows you that this church, Paul's writing in the mid-50s, was already screwed up. And, uh, well, that gives me a little bit of, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it makes me feel better, but at least I... Uh, you come to expect that there's going to be problems in church. It's not going to be this utopia. At the beginning of each year, I don't know if this is true for you, but most people take some kind of stock of the year past, right? The year in the past, and we give our thanksgivings, and we say, boy, I wish I would have done A, B, and C differently. And then we look ahead into the new year, and then we say, well, I, maybe I want to uh, go on a diet and lose weight, or I want to have more exercise, or, you know, followers of Jesus... Uh, and maybe you're, you're one of these people, you say, you know what, I'm going to resolve to read the Bible in a year, which is, by the way, a great thing to do. I highly recommend that. I'm going to learn a new skill, at least uh, I'm saying this publicly so you can hold me to it. I'm going to start learning bass guitar this year, start my first lesson with Nathaniel tomorrow. So, um, yep, hopefully you'll see me up here sometime later in the year if I'm worthy, if I'm worthy. The thing about resolutions, though, and good intentions is that they require change. And as you know, because I know you've tried to change before, I've tried to change before, anytime you try to change something about your life, you automatically are met with resistance. Because you either have to cut something out to add this new thing, uh, or you, know, you have to stop doing something, an old habit, and it just has a way of creeping back in after some time. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church that was struggling with making lasting changes in their lives. They started off well, but they had slipped into old habits, old ways of viewing their world and their place in the world. So 1 Corinthians can offer you and I encouragement. Hey, we're not the only ones who are screwed up in church. That's, that's encouraging. Um, 1 Corinthians can offer us some guidance on how to approach recurring issues in the church, such as pride, and selfishness, not that any of you struggle with those things, uh, sexual ethics, favoritism, gender relations, and discipleship in general, among other things. 
But before we dive into the text, I want to just offer us an overview of who were these Corinthians that Paul is writing to? What kind of people were they? As best we can tell. So I want Jen to put up, first of all, the Temple of Apollo there. Um, this is one of the uh, original ruins in Corinth today. It still stands and looks like that. Uh, Corinth had a history that goes back even before the ancient Greek civilization. This temple uh, is from the ancient Greeks, however. But by the po time Paul was there in roughly 50 AD, Corinth had undergone a massive, I can't overstate that enough, a massive change. And here's what happened. So it, it's this Greek city steeped in all of this rich Greek tradition, religion, trading, all of that stuff. And then in the year, if you care about history or whatever, you want to write this down, the year 146 BC, something happened. Rome was extending its grip, tightening its grip on all of these uh, city-states. It was trying to expand its borders. And there was a group called the Achaean League, who were like these freedom fighters. Think Rebel Alliance in Star Wars. And they were a, a, a coalition of city-states in Greece. And guess where their headquarters was? It was in Corinth. And so in the year 146 BC, Rome had had enough with this Achaean League group. And they came into Corinth and not only swiftly defeated the Achaean League, but then they said, we are going to make a statement. Just like, uh, you know, the empire did with Alderaan when they destroyed it with the Death Star. This is what they did to Corinth. They completely leveled it, broke down their temples, broke down their homes, moved every single living person out of Corinth, and then they said, Corinth is now a city, a ruin dedicated to the gods. No human being shall set foot in it. And for a hundred years, Corinth lay desolate from the year 146 B.C. until 46 A.D. Why did they re-inhabit Corinth? Why did Rome allow this? Well, a couple major reasons. First of all, it was too important a city. It overlooked an isthmus only four miles wide that linked the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea. So, Jen, go ahead and put the map up. So, just so you can get a perspective of what we're talking about. Mediterranean Sea, and for big benchmarks, here's Rome and Italy over here. And Egypt, we all know Egypt. There's Alexandria, one of the, the main cities in the world at that time. Second only to Rome, perhaps. Here's Jerusalem. Here's what we call Turkey, and Ephesus is here. This is actually where Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, from. He's in Ephesus at this time. And here's Corinth over here in the southern Greece. Now, Jen, go to the next map. So we're going to zoom in here a little bit more. Okay, and so Italy again, just for perspective. Ephesus over here. This is the Aegean Sea, Adriatic, so Venice is up in that area, and then the Ionian Sea. And Jen, one more time now to, to zoom in. Okay, here's Athens. We've all heard of Athens. I mean, all of these philosophers. Uh, this, is, this is where the cultural center of Greece is. And then right over here is Corinth. And this little land, this isthmus, is only four... So what would happen is in the times before steamships and power ships, it would take a lot longer to take your ship all the way down around the bottom of Greece. So what they would do is take their ship in and unload cargo on one side of the isthmus and then have all of these guys with carts and stuff take the goods to the other side where another ship would pick it up and take it up to the Aegean, to all of those places like Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica. 
up north. So it was a huge strategic place for trade. Anytime goods traded hands, by the way, for selling them or transporting them, taking them off a ship, putting them back on a ship, guess what could happen? Taxation. And Rome loved that. So this was an important place for them. Second, it was well fortified. Overlooking that isthmus, there's this thing called the Acrocorinth, which is 1,500 feet high. Not only is it high and well defensible from a, just a military perspective, but it had its own freshwater spring. So if a Roman outpost was there and it was getting invaded, they could fortify themselves and make it quite a while until reinforcements came. So it was a strategic place for trade and military presence. And in the year 46 uh, B.C., Sorry, I said 80 earlier. In the year 46 BC, a hundred years after it was leveled, Julius Caesar says, I want it. I want Corinth back. And, you know, Julius Caesar kind of got what he wanted. So uh, he repopulated this place. How did he do that? Okay, so Corinth is this place in Greece. But Caesar says, I want to colonize Corinth. And so he sent retired military officers. When you retire as an officer in the Roman military back then, you would often get the gift of freedom and you would get the gift of homesteading land. Well, Caesar said, okay, for this next crop of retirees, your homesteading land is going to be in Corinth. Good job. He also uh, sent criminals, lepers, and other undesirables along with a whole bunch of slaves to Corinth. So you've got this mixture of retired military officers, uh, slaves, uh, people that were unwanted from other parts of Rome, with all kinds of various moral issues going on, and they're all here, and none of them are Greek, okay? There might have been some Greek natives that came in to help with the labor force eventually, but you've got this complete mixture of cultures. As far as ancient cities are concerned, Corinth is unique in that, right, it's in Greece, but it's destroyed and rebuilt by Roman colonizers with Roman architecture and Roman planning. The temples were rebuilt, the original ones, to their Greek standards, but then right next to them, Roman temples were built. The language of official business in Corinth, even though it was in Greece, was Latin, but the common tongue was Greek and whatever else that people brought in from all over the world when they came to do commerce there. It was a melting pot of cultures and languages and religions. By the time Paul visited Corinth, the population was roughly 50,000 people, which is a decent-sized city in that time. According to Rodney Stark, only two cities in the whole of the Roman Empire were 150,000 people or more. Those two cities are Rome and... Any guesses? Corinth? Alexandria! Excellent, excellent. Alexandria. So Corinth at 50,000 people uh, was still a nice-sized city. We don't think of that being a very big city in our standards, but imagine the the footprint was tiny. 50,000 people in roughly the size of an area of the Lettered Streets neighborhood and Sunnyland neighborhoods combined. And to make matters worse, buildings were only built at most three stories high. They didn't have the technology to do it any bigger, so we couldn't just put people in high-rises. So they're literally packed in tight together, Disease was rampant. Plague was always uh, um, a concern. Fire was a huge concern because you have all these ramshackle things built close together. Uh, One fire just takes everything out, rebuild. It was a horrible, horrible existence, and that was the life in an ancient first century Roman city. 
When Paul planted the church in Corinth in the mid-50s A.D., the city was only 100 years old. It was a mixture of traditions, which meant that there was no overarching historical um, significance to the city, no set tradition. It was a constant shifting scene of sailors and merchants from all over the known world, each bringing their own gods and their own stories and their own songs and their own language and their own ethics and lack of ethics, if you will, from certain types of people. If you think about the great cities of the world today, each one has kind of its own identity or its own reputation. Each city has kind of a personality that's a function of a lot of things, like its history and its geography. Your geography of a city can have an impact on on how a city is perceived and how the people live there. Cities reflect their citizens, and they can shape their citizens. So we all know the story of, like, the straight and narrow person from... I don't know, the Midwest town, you know, farm, farm boy that goes to school in New York and is corrupted. You know, we, we, that's kind of a common, the cities have a way of influencing us just like we influence them. So, for example, people from London with its gray and cold drizzle cobbled streets and upper crust formality are very different from the people you meet every day in everyday Florence where it's warm and People are laid back, and they're warm, and invite you into their home. I, we stayed at a and b one time, and the family's just like, come have breakfast with us with this huge spread. I mean, that would never happen in a more formal setting, like Switzerland, for example. It's very, you know, straight and narrow. People in New York City are very different from people who grew up in L.A. Both are huge, significant American cities, but New York is more formal, more direct. I tell you what I think. L.A. is more laid back. I go around... You know, I I soften everything with a little West Coast niceness, right? Corinth may have been a new city, but it was full of pride. As a seaport and a gateway for major shipping routes, it was extremely wealthy. New money, we might say. So these are people that just colonized it and got rich quick. They didn't necessarily come from family uh, with lots of money. So it's not like they're buying, like, fine art for the wall, right? Yeah, they're, they're just blowing through this money. As a colony of Rome, Corinth had special privileges with the emperor uh, that Athens didn't even have. And most of all, Corinth is known for its loose moral standards. It was the Las Vegas of first century uh, Mediterranean world. Money changed hands freely. Anything was for sale. And what happened in Corinth, and anything could happen in Corinth, stayed in Corinth. Compared to Athens with its great agora, I mean, if you've ever been to Athens, the agora is the marketplace. It is generations of merchants there. Uh, there's the, the, it, we, we were at one little shop where they were selling coffee, and it was three generations of people working there. Just this rich, rich history. Centuries and centuries of people um, buying and selling in the agora. You are not going to be a swindler in the agora because everybody knows your grandfather and your father and your mother and they're gonna you know there's this accountability but in corinth nobody knows anybody anything goes so you better watch your back if if obi-wan was taking luke into corinth he might say (laughs) he might describe it as a wretched hive of scum and villainy right like the most icely spaceport that's that's my picture of corinth So when Paul comes with the gospel of Jesus and people begin converting and become disciples of Jesus, they had to absolutely shift 
their worldview. Although some converts in Corinth came from the local synagogue, the church there was largely Gentile or non-Jewish. Even many of the Jews at the synagogue in Corinth were probably Gentiles before they were converted to Judaism and then to Christianity. Most of these folks came from pagan backgrounds where they worshipped many gods and made sacrifices to appease these gods. And so you could imagine that even after staying there 18 months like Paul did to plant this church, after he left, there began to be problems in the church. The good news of Jesus had captured the hearts and minds of these new converts. They had repented and made significant changes in their lifestyles. They enjoyed new life. We have evidence of this in the scriptures, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They exuded the spiritual gifts. They enjoyed new family. Many of these folks um, were isolated. They were unwanted from other places. They didn't have family, but the church became their family. It was a wonderful experience, I'm sure. But as in any case, or as is often the case, old habits die hard. And once the high of conversion kind of wore off, and people actually had to interact with each other and have disagreements, those old character qualities begin to emerge of pride and arrogance and, and uh, anger and all of these things that cause divisions in the church. Some, it seems, even rejected Paul's authority and wanted more worldly standards of leadership. You know this guy Paul, he's kind of frumpy looking, and he doesn't speak very eloquently. We like this guy Apollos. He has a more polished tongue like the orators in Rome. Leaders and prophets were arguing in public worship. Women were gossiping. Christians were taking one another to court rather than settling disputes privately with grace and mutual submission. Paul finds out about all of these issues in at least two forms. One form is through letters that he wrote back and forth. In fact, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. It's, uh, there, there's a letter apparently that was written that we don't have a record of. It's been lost. The other way that Paul found out that there's division and, and strife in the church is through this Chloe and her people, her family. She actually went and saw him in Ephesus and told him that there were issues. And this is where the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them originally and that they received with open arms, this is where that gospel meets the real world where the rubber hits the proverbial road, right? This is where we have to work out what it means to follow Jesus. So put yourself in Paul's sandals for a moment. Writing from Ephesus, it would take well over a week for a letter you wrote to get uh, to, to Corinth. They couldn't just Skype in and settle this over that. And, and it was not easy for Paul just to get in a helicopter or something and go fly over to Corinth. So he would write a letter. What if you had to write a letter, if you were Paul? How would you respond to these Corinthian Christians? So many issues, so much sin in different various forms. What would you say in your letter? We're going to see how Paul just begins his letter. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Now I want you to pay attention, of course, to the words, of course, to the meaning of the words. But pay attention to the tone as well, if you could pick that out. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, 
to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spent 18 months planting the church in Corinth. He was there when some of these hardcore pagans, merchants who were swindling people, people who had done plenty of immoral things, he was there when these men and women repented from their sin. I imagine him counseling them, comforting them, gently challenging them, and supporting them. He walked with them through the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. He baptized some of them personally and approved of the baptisms that happened uh, through indigenous leadership. He nurtured the downtrodden, encouraged leaders. He pastored that church for 18 months. And now he finds out that this church is falling apart. Hardest, maybe, of all to swallow, if I'm putting myself in his shoes, were significant factions in the church discrediting Paul's name, teaching things contrary to the gospel of Jesus and flat-out contradicting things that Paul had taught. They were allowing open sin within their congregation to just go unchecked, no problem, and it was ripping up the body of Christ in Corinth. Now, Paul would have had every right to come out with anger. Listen here. You're destroying what I built. You're hurting people I love. Paul could have come out flexing his credentials. After all, before his conversion, Paul was a Bible scholar. He was blameless in an adherence to the Jewish law. He could have said, I studied for a decade under Rabbi Gamaliel. Don't you know who I am? If Paul was in today's educational system, he would have lots of letters after his name. But to Paul, those particular credentials were rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Which is why he begins by reminding them that he is an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. That is, he is an agent chosen by God. Not because one day Paul woke up and said, you know what, I want to be a Christian leader one day. He was chosen to be an apostle of Jesus. An apostle is a sent one, literally. In the New Testament, apostles were usually required to have been personal witnesses to Jesus. Paul did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose Paul. Jesus appointed him that he would bring the gospel to the nations. So it's God's apostle, a living witness to the person of Jesus who is writing this letter. Listen to him. And he's writing in relation to this brother Sosthenes. What this means is that Paul is writing as an apostle. He's been called by Jesus Uh, to bring the gospel to the church. But he's also writing in approval and with the endorsement of this brother, Sosthenes, who was a resident of Corinth and part of that Corinthian church. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes, our brother. More on Sosthenes in a little bit. Now, 
Notice in verse 2 that Paul doesn't address the letter to the church of Corinth. He writes, the church of God in Corinth. The church, he subtly reminds them, is not theirs, and it's not his, even though he planted it. The church belongs to God. It is God's church in Corinth. See, in their arrogance, the Corinthians were making decisions contrary to Paul's leadership. They were so full of themselves that they forgot it wasn't against Paul. The rebellion was against God's appointed apostle of Jesus, who just happened to be Paul. And they weren't simply making decisions about their local church. They were messing with God's church. As we get further into this letter to the Corinthians in the weeks to come, we're going to see Paul dealing with specific issues. But what I want to point out here is that he sets this whole letter, this whole correspondence, he frames it on a foundation of good theology. We, I, this is something I need to hear too. We live in a very practical culture. What good is all that theology? Let's just go help people. What, what do we need to know all that doctrine for? Let's just sing together and read the Bible. We need, we need to do those things, those heart things, those service things. But notice Paul's about ready to get nitty-gritty with a lot of practical stuff. But before he just dives in, he wants to be right. Not right for his own sake. He wants to frame this correctly and to remind everyone hey, I'm not coming at you in a position of authority on my own account. It's not because of my credentials. It's because God, and you guys recognize this when, when we planted Corinthian Church, God has called me to be his apostle. I've actually met him, Jesus. And, and so it's not my own authority. It's, it's the authority that God's given. And you, by the way, are not your own island unto yourself. You are the church of God. You have been called out. So he's going to frame this whole thing on good theology before he dives into the mess of the nitty-gritty sin issues themselves. The most important truth, the foundational thing he wants to get across is not his credential. In fact, he just mentions, mentions his apostleship simply so that they remember, hey, uh, my, my authority that, of what I'm writing from, it's from God. Just listen to me. But the most important thing he wants to get across is to remind them of what Jesus has done. To remind them of who they actually are in Christ. The church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, literally set aside for holy purposes, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, Okay, that was a mouthful. Just listen. Paul reminds the church that they have been, not our being, not someday will be, they have been sanctified. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, there were firm divisions between sacred and secular things. Not division of church and state. People wouldn't have understood that in the first century. Religion and politics were matched together. In fact, think of the emperor of Rome, Augustus, who, who believed he was a son of a god. It wasn't a separation of church and state. It was a separation of objects. For example, I don't know, this is simple grape juice and wine under here, and this is gluten-free bread that's semi-palatable, but however you say that. Okay, but on this table, right, on this table, this is the sacrament of, of Jesus. It's something that we've set aside. Those are 
Those are different. Those are sanctified. In the Old Testament, in the temple, in the tabernacle before it, there were utensils you would use. They're just the same utensils as you might use on your normal dinner table, but when they're set aside for the God's work, they're sanctified, they're made holy, and you only use them in the temple. And if you use them outside the temple, they become unclean. The people that go in the temple to worship to do special washings and prayers to get ready to worship the living God. If they don't do those things, they're not set apart, they're not sanctified, they shouldn't be in the temple to worship. Now, here's what Paul's saying to this church, and he's saying it to you as well. Through faith in Jesus, disciples are made holy. Paul reminds the Corinthian church that they have been called out by God through the ministry of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit to be a holy people. That's what they actually are. Now, they're not acting like it, and Paul's going to get down to that in the next few weeks as we go through the sermon series, but that's what they actually are. And guess what? That's what you actually are. You are a people called out by God. Whether or not you think you came looking for God, he always makes the first move. And he's telling this church in Corinth, you are called out by God through the work of Jesus, empowered now in the power of the Spirit, You are to be different than the world, dedicated to God's service. And he calls this group of people, when you, if you haven't read this letter yet, you get into some of the stuff that they're into, it's amazing what he calls them. He calls them saints. The ones in opposition to Paul, saints. The ones taking their brothers and sisters to court, saints. The ones getting drunk, that's in the letter, by the way, at communion meals, saints the church who have allowed a man who was sleeping with his father's wife to stay in fellowship calls them saints the one who was arguing over who gets to lead worship saints the married couples who were divorcing each other because they somehow believed this greek myth that it was unspiritual to be married saints what is a saint course the thing that pops to mind in popular lingo or media is some stoic looking person with a you know sporting a halo that's what we think of as a saint or a saint is a a pious person who never seems to make mistakes and do really important things in the world and have lots of biographies written about them and maybe even have a day on the church calendar named after them while i firmly believe we should honor those who have had exceptional lives of obedience to jesus That is not the definition of a biblical saint. In the New Testament, saint simply means holy one. The term comes from the Old Testament and was used in reference to the people of God. That's it. The people of God who didn't become people of God on their own merit, it was people of God because God chose them, they were the ones who were called saints. That's right. Israelites like Jacob, if you know his story, a saint. People like Judah, if you know his story, yeah, he's a saint. Moses, who murdered a guy, a saint, a holy one of God. David, who murdered someone and committed adultery with that guy's wife, a saint, a holy one of God. The story goes on and on and on and on and on. He calls them to be his representatives, his people, not because of their good merit or their good behavior. He calls them to be his representatives to be actors in his story of rescue. Now, 
Paul reminds the Corinthian church that even though they come from a startup city with no grand history, they have been grafted into the story of God. They are now saints, God's holy people, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the story of Moses and the prophets and the other great stories of Israel are now their story as well in Christ. They may not be acting like holy ones, but they are holy ones because God chose them and because they placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They became saints by calling on Jesus' name, and so did the church throughout the world. In other words, another thing that Paul is saying is, Corinthian church, you are not an island unto yourselves. You may be full of pride because of your wealth, You may think you are wise with your progressive views on sexual ethics, and you may be ashamed of the cross, but you are connected to a larger body. You are special only because God chose you, but for no other reason. You are in the minority view within the church around the world, and I am reminding you that the rest of the church does not agree with you, and I am warning you, receive this good news that you're part of this great lineage that you didn't deserve But be warned as well, you are outside the mainstream, you are outside the bounds of the teachings of Christ whom you say you follow. Then Paul says, now, grace and peace to you, shalom, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's so generous. Paul had every right at this point to take them to task. He could have blasted their warped views from the get-go, but instead, he is gentle, and he reminds them of the truth of who they are. And he blesses them. Oh, he's ever blessing. He blesses them with grace. And Paul knew a thing or two about grace, didn't he? Before he was the great apostle, he was a great persecutor of the church. That is, until Jesus himself met him on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, Paul's heart was transformed. It was changed. But I think that his previous sin of being a persecutor of the church with such zealousness gave him a kind of empathy for those other people he came across with the same problem, misplaced zeal. Now, we don't know for sure, but there is a strong possibility that Sosthenes, mentioned earlier in this letter, is the same Sosthenes that Ian read about from Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is the story of when Paul goes to Corinth and the things that happen there. In that chapter, Paul was in Corinth when some Jewish leaders from the synagogue brought a complaint against him and the Christians. And they brought this complaint to the Roman proconsul, Gallio. Sosthenes was one of the leaders from the synagogue who would have brought this complaint to Gallio. Well, Gallio, who is really arrogant, by the way, we have all these readings, uh, writings about Gallio. He basically just says, sounds like a Jewish weird religion problem. And we don't even recognize your little religion. We're Romans. Take care of it yourself. So here's what happens. Sosthenes and the leaders of the synagogue, including uh, Crispus at the time before he was converted, these guys are coming up to Gallio, the proconsul. Paul and these groups of Christians are distorting the truth about our God. The Roman citizens are, are just mad because Sosthenes is making a big deal. The Jews are making a big deal. When Gallio says, I don't care about your little religious problem, 
the mob of Romans, the pagans, they turn on Sosthenes and the Jewish leadership, and they beat them. The, uh, Acts 18 says that Sosthenes personally was beaten by these mobs. Now, we don't know what happened, except that eventually Sosthenes became a follower of Jesus and a friend of Paul's. Wouldn't it be just like Paul to have after the mob is dispersed and there's Sosthenes in a bloody heap, wouldn't it be just like Paul to go over to him and instead of saying you shouldn't mess with God's people, to comfort him and to bandage his wounds and to say I've been there and I, I respect your zeal for the Lord. Wouldn't it be just like that kind of thing that would win Sosthenes' heart over for Jesus? Paul doesn't just say grace and peace to you because it's a nice thing to say. He says it because he's experienced it and he means it. And he means it for you and for me as well. You who are struggling with anger and pride and jealousy. You and I, saints of Jesus, we've been called out by God the Father who loves you and loves me. You and I who might be stuck in a cycle of sinful addiction, you are a saint of Christ, not because of what you do, but because of who your faith is in. You who are self-righteous and judgmental of others, no matter how hard you try not to be, you are a saint, grace to you, and shalom from our common Father who is in heaven. I suspect if you're like me, that we all need to remember the solid theological foundation that we are rescued through grace, through faith in Jesus. If you had forgotten that good news, or if you're hearing that good news for the first time, let this first Sunday of the new year be the first Sunday in your new life. Christ was born on Christmas Day then died to take our sin away. He rose in victory over death and calls us now to live an undying life. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, even being thought of as a saint or called a saint makes most of us feel uncomfortable we inherently know that we have not lived up to that title. And it makes us shudder because we still struggle with believing that we really, really have to earn your love. Lord, thank you for the reality and truth in Paul's beginning uh, letter here. That reminds us that we are saints simply by your calling and our faith in you. It's not a matter of becoming something. It is recognizing what we are. And I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would help us where there is walls in our hearts, walls in our minds, built up that resist believing that you love us that much, that resist receiving the good news that we are rescued and made new through faith alone. 
in Jesus the Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will begin to own the reality of who we are. And instead of being cynical and jaded and doubtful, we would be filled with joy instead. And that our lives would actually begin to change, not because we're supposed to do the right things, but because we realize we are new people. That we have truly been rescued. That the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a reality that we don't need to suppress. Come alive in us, Lord Jesus, in a way we've never experienced on this Epiphany Sunday and every day. Amen.